Thank you for listening to the Alliance Church Podcast. We desire to connect you with God and one another, whether here in Wisconsin or around the world. Let's listen into this week's message. Second part of our series on famous falls, on failure. And uh, last week, uh, I opened it up. We talked about probably the greatest failure ever in the history of mankind, which is the fall of man. We looked at Genesis and the fall of Adam and Eve and what that meant for us and the hope that we have in Christ to go back to glory. Today, um, the theme will be the failure of a leader, Saul. We're going to look at King Saul in the Old Testament. We'll be mostly in 1 Samuel. We'll be in some other places. And uh, I would like to read uh, the main text this morning to you uh, because this is where I'm going to really be springboarding from. This is from 1 Samuel chapter 13, verses 1 to 14. Saul was 30 years old when he became king. He's a young man. He was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned over Israel 42 years. Saul chose 3,000 men from Israel. 2,000 were with him at Michmash and in the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan, his son, at Gibeah in Benjamin. The rest of the men he sent back to their homes. Jonathan attacked the Philistine outpost at Geba, and the Philistines heard about it. Then Saul had the trumpet blown throughout the land and said, let the Hebrews hear. So all Israel heard the news. Saul has attacked the Philistine outpost, and now Israel has become obnoxious to the Philistines. And the people were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. The Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, Soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They went up and camped at Michmash, east of Beth-Avon. When the Israelites saw their situation was critical and that their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets among the rocks and in pits and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul remained at Gilgal. And all the troops with him were quaking with fear. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel, the prophet. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, bring me the burnt offerings and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Just as he finished making that offering, Samuel arrived. And Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, when I saw that the men were scattering and you did not come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilead and I've not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. Notice the verbs there. I saw, I thought, I felt. You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the Lord's command the Lord God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people. 
because you have not kept the Lord's command. Looks can be deceiving. On the outside, King Saul was a very, very successful leader. He was charismatic, he was effective, he was strong, and he reigned for a long time. He reigned 42 years. Of all the Israel kings in the Old Testament, only two kings reigned longer. And in in 1 Samuel chapter 9, it says, we won't look at it, but it says he basically was tall, dark, and handsome. I think if Saul came down these uh, aisles, every woman would turn here today and look at him, and their hearts would flutter. (laughs) He was a dynamic leader. I remember in my first church in New Jersey 40 40 years ago, there was one guy that was in our district in New Jersey, and he planted a church in Princeton, New Jersey. Let me tell you something. One of the most liberal places on planet Earth is Princeton, New Jersey. And to plant an evangelical church there, almost impossible. Today, there's like 3,000 people in this church. This guy was amazing. He was dynamic. He He lit up a room when he went into a room. He was tall, dark, and handsome, the whole thing. He's out of ministry today. Much like the reason that Saul failed. But Saul started out on the outside, dynamic. And you know what? He took 12 scattered tribes. He wove them together into a unified force. And that army that he inherited that was awful, it was untrained, it was ill-equipped, he led them to many, many victories, military victories. In fact, in chapter 13 of 1 Samuel, it says, just to give you an idea of how bad this army was, It says, there wasn't one blacksmith in all of Israel at the time. You know what that means? No one to make any tools. No one to make any weapons. In fact, it tells us in verse 22 of that chapter that there were only two weapons in the entire army. Saul had one sword. His son Jonathan had a spear. That's it. Can you imagine leading an army of 3,000 people and you only got two weapons? But King Saul takes this nation and with God's help, he leads them to stand against a very, very powerful nation at that time. Saul was a successful king. He was. But his leadership from God's perspective, is going to look very different. Why? Because God doesn't look at the outward appearance. He doesn't care about the record or the accomplishments. Yes, those things are meaningful, but that's not what God focuses on. What does God focus on in a leader? His heart. Her heart. When God looks at a man or woman and looks at their leadership, he looks at their heart. If you, listen, here's first application to the message today. If you're a leader... God is not impressed with all you're doing. Whether it's sports, education, politics, business, even humanitarian work. God's concern is a leader's heart. Why? Because everything in our life comes out of our heart. Look at this verse, Proverbs chapter 4. It says, above all else, listen, young people, listen to this verse. Above, Above everything else in life, guard your heart. 
Guard what you love, what you choose to love in life. For everything you do flows from it. Well, we're going to see today that Saul's heart is in turmoil. His heart is struggling with God. And at the end of it all, it's going to end up, unfortunately, in failure and defeat. But I want to emphasize to you, this did not happen to a man who started out that way. He starts out well. Saul starts out as a very humble leader. That's what's so scary about this. This can happen to any leader if you don't guard your heart. Let, let me just show you how he starts out. This is from 1 Samuel chapter 10. Okay? Israel has decided we want an earthly king like the rest of the nations. God, yes, you're our king, but we want somebody we can see. So God says, okay, I'm going to give you a king. And he chooses Samuel. When Samuel had all Israel come forward, Samuel is the prophet. When Samuel had all Israel come forward by tribes, the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. Then he brought forward the tribe of Benjamin, clan by clan, and Matri's clan was taken. All the clans are going before Samuel, and he's going to select which one the king is going to come from. Finally, Saul, son of Kish, was taken. But when they looked for him, he was not found. So they inquired further of the Lord, has the man come here yet? And the Lord said, yes, he has hidden himself among the supplies, among the baggage. They ran and brought him out, and he stood among the people. He was a head taller than any of the others. Samuel said to all the people, do you see the Lord, the, do you see the man the Lord has chosen? There is no one like him among all the people. And the people shouted, long live the king. He's showing some very good qualities right off the bat. He's not seeking leadership. Where's Saul? He's hiding among the baggage. And it says later in the chapter, when they bring him forth and they put the crown on his head and they said, you're the king, it says there's some young men who didn't like it. And they mock him and they criticize him. But the text says, Saul kept silent. He's a secure leader. He doesn't, he doesn't have to defend himself. But somewhere along the line, somewhere along the line, power becomes a problem in Saul's life. And we'll see today that Saul fails God because he begins more and more on taking on power that does not belong to him. You know, that's a good definition of sin. Sin at its very root is a person taking power that belongs to God. There are three principles, I believe, that you can apply to leadership from this example of Saul. Three principles that will describe Saul's failure as a leader. The first is this. Feeling sorry for your mistakes is not repentance. Let me repeat that. Feeling sorry for your mistakes is not repentance. Let's review the scene again here in chapter 13. Saul is facing the Philistine army, very powerful enemy. When we go to Israel every year, which we do, uh, we don't go to the Gaza Strip. Why? Because the Gaza Strip is where they're lopping all the, trying to do the, the bombs. They throw the bombs from the tunnels, you know, and they have the, the dome the defensive dome that uh, 
that destroys most of them and then some of them explode in the desert. But they try, at least, to throw these bombs over. And it's all from this Gaza Strip, which is where? Where the Philistines lived, out by the coast. Still going on today. Well, the Philistines back then had 3,000 chariots and 6,000 charioteers. What does that mean? How many, chari- how many charioteers to a chariot? Come on, are you good in math or what? Two, right? 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers. The soldiers, it says, as numerous as the sand on the seashore. That's a lot of people. And Saul has an army of 3,000 untrained men with how many weapons? Two. The prophet Samuel tells Saul, wait here seven days. And I'm going to come, I'm going to make sacrifices to God, which only a priest or a prophet could do, and, he, and he'll tell us what we should do, and he'll deliver us. He asked Saul to be patient and wait for seven days. Now, let's be honest. Let's not get on Saul's case. That would be hard for any of us, right, to wait for seven days, especially if the troops are getting restless. In fact, you and I live in the most impatient generation in human history, We speed everything up from food to the internet to rental cars to the IRS returns, everything. Everything has to be faster and quicker. And of course, that leaves us to be very impatient when things go slow. My wife and I were just, um, in fact, this, this year we were coming back from a trip from one of our journeys, and we had to get a connecting flight in Detroit and uh, we were, they had messed up our flights, so they booked us on a flight that was the absolute last flight of the day, like six hours later, but we could make this one and get back to Appleton. So we rush off the plane, and we run to the, uh, to the desk, and we just get their time. They're, they're boarding the last passenger, and there's two people there, and I'm trying to get their attention because they got to change our ticket. They got to get us on board. So I'm, I'm trying to get their attention. They're not following me. Now, let me tell you something what happens usually when that happens for Christians. Usually, for Christians, there's little whispers in our ears, you know, saying things like, be patient. Keep your head in all situations. Bear with one another. Clothe yourself with humility. I wasn't hearing any of that. So (laughs) I said, look, I got to get on that plane. (coughs) And fortunately, by God's grace, he sent me. Sometimes it says you entertain angels. It was an angel. She was was unbelievable. She said, let me take care of you right now. And she got us on. Well, Saul's got to wait seven days. And guess what? He does. He waits seven days. But Samuel doesn't arrive because he gets delayed. The troops are getting restless. And then Saul does something he knows he shouldn't do. He does a very prideful, bold thing. He makes an altar, and he offers sacrifices on it. That was something only a priest, only a prophet could do. Saul proudly assumes that office and takes power that does not belong to him. When Samuel arrives, he tells Saul, Saul, you have been disobedient to God. And God's going to have to pick another king to replace you. And notice how Samuel identifies the new leader. Verse 14. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of the people. 
because you have not kept the Lord's command. What's Saul's problem? What's Saul's problem? His heart. He's got a heart problem. He's not just disobedient. The disobedience comes from a heart that is increasingly more proud and wants to take power that does not belong to him. And by the way, you know, you might look at this and say, wow, that's kind of harsh. I mean, he just starts out as king and for God to kind of, I mean, the troops are restless. Where's the mercy? Well, what, you, what we don't have time to do, and I could prove it to you today, if we went through chapter 13, chapter 14, chapter 15 of 1 Samuel, you would see many, many vignettes of Saul doing the same exact thing, having a problem with power. And, and what happens is when God finally says, Saul, you've been disobedient, that's wrong, very often Saul feels sorry for what he did but he never repents. There's not one indication in all of those chapters that he's willing to repent. Feeling sorry for your mistakes is not repentance. Does Saul feel badly for what he does? Absolutely. In fact, on one occasion, he's in a cave with Saul in a place called, uh, with David in a place called Engedi. Again, when we go to Israel, I take the group to Engedi. Not to the cave, but you can see there's all caves there. And I do a little teaching there. And I talk about this time when David was hiding. He was like a hunted animal. Saul wants to kill him. He's jealous of him. He knows he's going to be the king. And so David is hiding in the back of the cave. It's dark. When you come in from the light, you can't see anything. And he goes in to relieve himself, to go to the bathroom. And David's men are there and they're whispering in David's ear, this is a divine appointment. God has given your enemy into your hand. Kill him. And David knows he's not to touch God's anointed. So he cuts off a piece of his robe and then he realizes in his conscience, that's wrong. I'm trying to embarrass him and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to dishonor God's anointed. So Saul finally hears David far away say Saul I had you in my hands I didn't do anything though let's look what it says here what Saul's response is in chapter 24 you're more righteous than I he said you have treated me well but I have treated you badly you have just now told me about the good you did to me the Lord delivered me into your hands but you didn't kill me when a man finds his enemy does he let him get away unharmed May the Lord reward you well for the way you treated me today. Saul is sorry for what he did. He feels sorry, but he does not repent. He doesn't change. Only a short time later in chapter 26, Saul is told that David is in the desert of Ziph now. And it says, quote, Saul went down with 3,000 select Israel troops. These are the special forces to search for David and kill him, unquote. Feeling sorry for your sin, feeling sorry for, repent, uh, for your mistakes is not repenting. The word repentance means to actually go in the opposite direction, to make a permanent change. Second principle we find from Saul's example is you become what you rebel against. 
you become what you rebel against. Saul is having a problem with obeying God's commands. He thinks God's requirements are too harsh. Now watch what happens here. You're going to see King Saul, even though he thinks God's being harsh with him, Saul is going to put a heavy demand on his own troops, unrealistic demands. He calls them to an obedience that he would never do himself. Isn't that strange? Here's a man who's struggling with obedience himself, and yet he's calling his troops to strict obedience, or maybe, maybe that isn't strange. Maybe that's another characteristic of a rebellious person. You demand strict obedience from others while you disobey. It develops this way in chapter 14. The war is about to start between Israel. 3,000 men, how many swords? Two swords. On the other side, the Philistines with all their chariots and men. The strategy the Israelites employ is guerrilla warfare. Guerrilla warfare isn't new. When you're totally outnumbered by the opposing force, you have to gain some advantage. So the Israelites are using this tactic to fight this very large Philistine army. They're hiding in cliffs, and then they're jumping out. It's guerrilla warfare. Young Jonathan, who's his son, is a gamer, and he gets anxious for some action. So he decides to go to the Philistines himself, and he, ta- he tells his assistant, his armor bearer, look, why don't you and I come out of this foxhole we're hiding in, and we'll challenge the Philistines to fight us. They're up on the hill. Philistine outpost is on the hill. If, we, if they say to us when we jump out of our foxhole, hey, come up here to us, then we'll know God's going to deliver us. And if they don't say that, we'll just have to fight them here. Chapter 14. So both of them showed themselves to the Philistine outpost. Look, said the Philistines, the Hebrews are crawling out of their holes they're hiding in. The men of the outpost shouted to Jonathan and his armor bearer, come up here and we'll teach you a lesson. So Jonathan said to the armor bearer, climb up after me. The Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Jonathan climbed up using his hands and feet and with his armor bearer right behind him. And the Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer followed and killed behind him. In that first attack, Jonathan and his armor bearer killed some 20 men in an area about half an acre. Wow. Well, when the Philistines hear about this, that this one guy has killed 20 of our men, they figure, well, maybe this army has more weapons than we anticipated. Panic strikes the whole camp of the Philistines, and they start to run away. King Saul sees this, and he says, come on, let's go. Drop your plows and your sickles or whatever else you were carrying. Pick up their swords that they leave behind, and let's slay them while they retreat. And it's at this time that he makes a very harsh and strange request. Let's read it. Chapter 14. Now the Israelites were in distress that day because King Saul had bound the people with an oath saying, cursed be anybody who eats food before evening comes, before I've avenged myself on my enemies. So none of the troops tasted food. Let me explain the scene here. If you go to Israel, especially to where this was, it's hot. It's desert. They're going all day long. They're running and pursuing these enemies, and they're doing it all without eating. 
It's a harsh demand on his men. It's not God who's, who's saying this. This is King Saul. And even Jonathan sees it. It's a harsh demand. The men are exhausted. So what happens is Jonathan, who hasn't heard the order by his father, he takes his staff and he dips it into a honey cone and he eats some honey. And then he realizes he's disobeyed the king's order. Uh-oh, uh-oh. The king said, curse it to any man who eats food. His son Jonathan has eaten honey. Pause button. You see, it's not unusual that when people are rebelling against authority and obedience, those same people require a strict obedience from others. The principle is you become like what you rebel against. Have you known people like that? I've seen adults who rebel as teenagers against their parents, and they end up running their household like an army. We almost have to salute mom and dad. I've seen Christians rebel against church authority, against pastors and elders. And they make all the excuses for their rebellion, but oh, their kids have to, they have, they have, they have to live by the letter of the law. You become what you rebel against. In Exodus, it talks about the sins of parents being extended to future generations of your children. This is an area that could apply. You can pass on to your children your rebellious attitude. And it can be seen again and again in the lives of generations. A rebellious heart is one of the things you can pass on. Saul has become what he's rebelling against. Third principle. Religion cannot cover up a rebellious heart. I don't care how religious you try and be. That won't solve the problem of a rebellious heart. This goes on throughout the scenes in the book. Saul makes a lot of public show of his desire to obey God, even though in his heart he's rebelling. After the fighting's over, his men are so exhausted, they're starving. You know what they do? They pounce on the booty, on the, on the animals and the livestock that they've captured. And they're so hungry, they butcher them and they eat them with blood in it. What did we just say at the communion table? That's anathema to the Jew, Leviticus 7. A, a clear command by God. You can't eat blood in the animal because the life of the animal is in the blood. And of course, this goes against all Jewish laws. Well, someone's got to tell Saul now. So they tell him. Look what he says. Then someone said to Saul, look, the men are sinning against the Lord by eating meat that has blood in it. You have broken faith, he said. Roll a large stone over here at once. Then he said, go out among the men. Tell them, each of you, bring me your cattle and sheep and slaughter there and eat them. Don't sin against the Lord by eating meat with blood still in it. So everyone brought this, his ox that night and slaughtered it there. Why? So he can make a public worship service and sacrifice to God. This man who's disobeying God in the big things is so concerned about the obedience to the Lord in the little matters of his religion. Do you know people like that? They're called legalists. Is legalism the sign of a rebellious heart? I think it may. 
People who are covering up their own rebellious attitude by requiring others to live by the letter of the law. Saul has that problem. He's rebelling, but he's a legalist. And I mean, he really puts on a religious show. We won't have time to go into it. He gets the Ark of the Covenant to travel with him. He, he has his own priest traveling with him. In fact, he even hires the great-grandson of Eli, the prophet. And in verse 36, the priest says to Saul, Saul, we ought to ask God what to do now. So he says, okay, let's inquire of the Lord what to do. That's a good thing. Let me go before God as the king and ask him what we should do. Verse 37, so Saul asked God, shall I go down and pursue the Philistines? Will you give them into Israel's hand? But God did not answer him that day. God is not fooled by the religious veneer of this leader or his concerns. He sees a rebellious heart, so God doesn't respond. I tell you, folks, I've been a pastor for four years. I've seen a lot of people do religion. And I've also seen people do religion that have rebellious hearts. It doesn't solve the problem. When a husband is harsh with his wife and overly strict with his kids, he can cultivate rebellious children. When a wife refuses to yield to the spiritual authority of her husband and refuses to respect him and honor him, she begins to cultivate in her own children that same attitude of rebellion and resistance. When a business manager or a leader of an organization is wrestling with authority, they transmit that attitude to the workers. It's a spirit of rebellion. I can think of a teenager right now from my first church. And um, she came from a large family. There were a lot of kids in the family. And the mother expected her to do chores, some cooking, some household chores. And, and this girl felt she was being used. I, I was never in the house. I didn't see it up close, but I knew her mom somewhat. I don't think it was as bad as she made it out to be, but she rebelled. She left the family. She went to New York City, and her parents knew where she was, but uh, she wouldn't come home. If you talk to her, she made her mother out to be a terrible, demanding tyrant. I, again, I don't think she was as bad as she makes her out to be, but at least that's what she thought her mother was, a tyrant. A tyrant. So she ran away to escape that. Well, it just so happens when she goes to New York, she meets a young man who also is rebelling against his parents. I guess that's just a coincidence. And they get married on short notice, and they begin married life together, and all of a sudden they start having problems. You know what the problems are? They find each other too demanding. You're asking too much of me. So after about a year... The guy runs off with another woman. She shortly has a baby, less than two years into it, and she's knee-deep in diapers now and right back where she started. Strangely enough, she becomes a very demanding, angry person towards everybody around her. She may not be like her mother, but she's certainly what she thought her mother was. You become what you rebel against. 
Well, pastor, what do I do? I mean, how do I change this? I don't want to pass this on. I don't want to be this kind of person. What's the opposite of a rebellious heart? Well, the opposite of a rebellious heart is a soft, obedient heart. And pastor, how do I cultivate a soft, obedient heart? Answer, you don't. You can't change your heart. There are three action steps I'm going to give you if you're serious about change. The first is you have to admit that you're a rebel. You have to admit you have a rebellious spirit. Now, we're all rebels in some way, right? But stop the blame game. The problem is you. Number two, admit that God establishes all the authority in your life. Good or bad, he puts them there. And you're to obey and submit. Romans chapter 13 This is Bible, folks. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. If there's somebody over you in authority, God's put them there. I'm not saying everything they do comes from God. I'm saying in his sovereign plan, they're there, which means somehow you got to be, you got to find a way to honor that. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, it says, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. So number one, admit the problem is me. Secondly, God has put all the authority structures in my life right now. And third, you have to realize and admit to yourself, only God can change my heart. Only God can change my heart. Here's the verse. It's Ezekiel, and God is giving, t- talking to Israel, but the, it applies to human beings as well. He says, I'll give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit and attitude inside of you. I will remove your heart of stone, and I'll give you a heart of flesh, a soft heart. And I will put my spirit, capital S, I'll put my Holy Spirit in you and move you to follow my degrees and be careful to keep my laws. Saul has a bad heart. He's got a heart problem. And he's losing integrity with the people he's leading. You know, that's an awful thing when you're a leader. It's an awful thing to fail and betray what you know is the right thing to do and, and feel frustrated by it because you can't do anything to stop it. You need a new heart. But I got, new, I got good news for you folks. This is what God is in the business of. God changes people from the inside out, and he can give you a new heart. But what do you have to do? You have to be willing to repent, to say, I, I, I can't do it. And to throw yourself at the mercy of God and say, God, I'm not making any more excuses. I don't, I don't like who I am. I don't like how I'm hurting people. I want you to give me a new heart, a soft heart, an obedient heart. I want to be yours. I want to be your kind of leader. Let me tell you something. You pray that prayer. God will not reject anybody who prays that prayer. 
who comes before him bankrupt and says, there's nothing in me that I offer to you. I want you to kill this person inside of me and raise up a whole new person with a new heart. He'll do it. He'll do it. Let's stand for closing prayer. I want to leave an opportunity this morning for someone that God may have talked to today and said, there's nobody else in the room. It's you and me. And God is telling you you need a new heart. And God is telling you you need to surrender to him on this day and ask him to come, to come inside you and kill this person and raise up a whole new person in Christ and to give you a new heart. Do it. Do it. Surrender your life to Jesus Christ this morning and he'll do it. Oh God, thank you for the way you pursue us. Thank you for your power. Thank you for the way that you can mold us and shape us into something beautiful. Pray, God, that you'll make us obedient people with soft hearts. And now may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. And God's people said, amen.